Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the podcast, I'm going to hand the microphone over to my co-host, Randall Jacobs, who's got Brad Bingham from Bingham Built Bicycles out of Steamboat Springs, Colorado on the podcast. You may have seen some of his beautiful titanium bikes floating around the world. I remember the first time I saw one up at Dawn Patrol here in Mill Valley. Beautiful bike, exceptional welds. It was like, where did you get that thing? I haven't seen too many of them around, so it was super exciting to actually see one in the flush and validate what I've known for a long time, that Brad builds beautiful bikes. Randall and he jump into a deep conversation that covers a lot of the elements of building bikes, some of the compromises that we've discussed earlier on this podcast when I was building my own custom frame. It's a robust and hearty conversation that lasted about an hour and 20 minutes. I was trying to find a natural place to break it up, but I actually couldn't, so I'm just going to let it stand. So if you need to break this episode in your own personal listening into a couple different time slots, I understand, but it's a great conversation. Again, another one I'm looking forward to re-listening to just because I think you can learn a lot from Brad's vast experience in the industry coupled with Randall's experience. With that said, let's jump right into the conversation. Yeah. So I'm, I'm Brad Bingham. I'm uh, based out of Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And I'm a custom titanium frame builder. I've uh, been doing that here in Colorado for, gosh, going on, what, 27 years? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Tw- 27 years. Correct. Yeah. You don't look, you started welding when you were like eight? Uh, no, I, <laughs> I really started welding in earnest um, senior in high school. And then, No kidding. And then, yeah, I moved here to, to Steamboat right after I turned 20. And so, so yeah. tell me about those first welding experiences. How'd you get into it? Was it starting with bikes or was it uh, a general, was it a vocational program? What was the no, nature of the? It, it was very bike centric. So okay. I, I knew that I wanted to construct bike frames, uh, mountain bikes specifically. And uh-huh. to do that, I needed to know how to, you know, join two tubes together. And at the time, I mean, I was 18 years old and didn't have any welding experience whatsoever. So I went and took a, uh, evening like uh, community college TIG welding course. It was like a 75 hour course and took that in the, in the evenings after work. Um, and I walked in there with a couple of parted off pieces of Reynolds bike tubing. And I said, I just need to know how to put these two things together. And so this is really, I mean, this has been your path in life since the Mm -hmm. beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a, it seems like an increasingly rare phenomenon to have such clarity at a young age at what you want to do and then to go out and do it. So uh, good on you. Some of us, some of us, it takes a lot longer. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was always really passionate about making things. I, I just always needed to be making something or working on something. And luckily the bikes found me, 
you know, because I was a rider and, um, the idea of building bikes was, you know, not, not anything that crossed my mind until a good friend of mine said, well, why don't you just build your own? And that was, that was the genesis. So, and we were just talking a moment ago, I, I, I was apologizing for the, the state of affairs in my house because I'm in the process of building a new house around the husk of a, of a old derelict but, but lovely uh, home that I just purchased. And you mentioned you built your home as yeah. well. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. I'm kind of curious about this builder mentality yeah, uh, in so, a more general sense. Yeah, I did not, you know, obviously I did not build the entire home myself, Um my dad was a, um, was a custom home builder for 25 mm. years. And so he was retired at the time. And this was 2000, like 2002 to 2004. Um, he had just recently finished a home helping out my sister build, build a home in Bend, Oregon. And so about a, uh, about a year, year and a half after that, um, I talked him into coming out here and, and helping me build a home. So it was a big, big project, but really he, I have to say he did at least 80, 85% of the heavy lifting. Like, got it. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was amazing. He's, he passed away in 2008. Um, but he was just a super smart guy and really good at building homes and being efficient, not wasting materials. Um, you know, I was a, I was working for Moots at the time, didn't have a huge salary or anything. It's not like I was a rich guy. We were really trying to build it as inexpensively as possible. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, um, granted, sounds like your father was far more expert than mine, but we share that uh, my, my father passed in 07 mm. and I didn't get to build a home with him, but I did get to work on um, a couple of properties that... Um, uh, he had, uh, my parents had purchased with um, a aunt and uncle. And these properties were always underwater and always, you know, falling apart. And they'd never had the budget to do, you know, to hire out. And so it's just like, all right, we need to figure this out. And that's how I learned, you know, one of the key ways that I learned how to use tools, how to do things for myself. And there's a certain, um, there's a certain sense of um, one personal responsibility. And also with that, personal um, uh, competence and confidence that goes with learning from a young age to sure. do things like you don't need to hire an expert. You can consult experts. Maybe sometimes you do, but you can learn this. So that's uh, that would seem to have carried into uh, a lot of things in in uh, in what you've done starting at age 20 welding frames. Yeah. Yeah. And, and prior to that, I was you know, I was always on my dad's job sites. Um, mostly cleaning up, you know, <laughs> um, as, as one does in, at, when you're a grunt. Yep. Yep. Yeah. But, but yeah, you do learn a lot and yeah, good stuff. That's great. Um, so tell me, so you mentioned you, you take this course, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you're in high school or just out of high school and you go to work for Moots right after how'd that uh, come about? No, I was, uh, I had the opportunity in high school to be part of a cooperative work experience uh, with the world's largest dental equipment manufacturer. So oh. I worked, I worked in their engineering department um, really as a drafts person, uh, um, junior, senior year in high school. 
And then that carried over into after high school. Um, I was not, a, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of life things that, that kind of slowed me down from going to college. Um, my mom was recovering from some pretty harsh cancer and I wasn't mm. really excited to, to leave her. My parents were recently divorced. Like, you know, all these things kind of piled up to me staying, staying in my hometown for a year after high school. And I continued to work, uh, in that engineering department and kind of the, the, uh, path would have been to go into mechanical engineering from there. But I, I kind of looked around and I was like, I don't think this is for me. I just, you know, I don't want to just be kind of a cog and cog in the wheel, you know, cog in the machine. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to have a you know, more greater grasp, more of the whole scope of projects. Um, and that's, you know, bike, bike building allows you to do that. Well, for, for better or for worse, in a lot of regards, especially in the beginning when you're trying to get off the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the product, it's the business, it's the marketing, and which is really just another way of saying how do you communicate? How do you build awareness? How do you connect with people? Sure. Um, so so then, you know, walk us through kind of what what that journey looks like. So, you know, it's, it's funny, I, uh, I like I said, I, you know, a gentleman that I worked with, uh, who was a really good friend uh, at the dental manu dental equipment manufacturer, um, he ended up becoming you know, years later, he was director of engineering. Uh, this is a big major company, like 1200 employees on site, um, major manufacturing capabilities right there in my hometown, which is just outside of Portland, Oregon. And, and uh, what, um, what types of products? Oh, uh, have I had your products in my mouth at some point? Uh, maybe not in, maybe not literally in your mouth, <laughs> but, but potentially actually, yeah, you probably have like the, uh, you know, the little suction wand that uh, mm -hmm. goes in your mouth while you're at the dentist. Yeah. I mean, they even, oh, produce, yeah. they even produce that. So the company was ADEC and okay. you walk into, you walk into certain dent, dental offices and you'll see that every single piece in that office, it's me, sorry, is oh, okay. uh, every single piece has ADEC on it, literally from the chair that you're sitting on to the cabinets, literally everything. So what I'm hearing is here you are, this this young kid in 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 high school or just out of high school, you get this this mm -hmm. opportunity to work in a very large uh, organization in mm -hmm. with you know, seasoned professionals doing, you know, medical products at a whole nother layer um, of complexity in terms of design and development and supply chain and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so you're dealing with that sort of thing. Um, and that was kind of your jumping off point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, you know, I got into the bike building thing because my buddy that I rode with, I broke a couple of Cannondales and he said, why don't you just, make, <laughs> why don't you just make your own? And yeah. so of course I did. And it kind of spiraled, you know, I was in his garage late every single night machining something. And, uh, you know, kind of once I built that first bike, it was a really great experience, but I was kind of like, well, what's, what's next in this. And then he said, why don't make one out of titanium. And, uh, so I went and took the United Bicycle Institute titanium 
frame building course in 1996. Um, and it was taught by Gary Helfrich, uh, who is okay. one, of the, one of the founders of Merlin. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, through that process, Moots got a hold of my name. And I got asked to come out to Colorado to interview for a welding position. And, you know, as soon as they offered it to me, I took it. And kind of the, you know, the rest is, is history. And, you know, I did feel like that was a wonderful opportunity. I got out here and I kind of initially thought to myself, like, okay, I'll, I'll do a year out here, figure it out, and then I'll get back to Oregon and I'll start my own brand. Mm-hmm. But I got out to Colorado and it's like, wow, I'm, I'm not going to go home and build better bikes than this. And, Mm. you know, I'm, I'm not going to go step, step away and just immediately be building better bikes. That's not going to happen. Um, and I fell in love with, with Colorado and the, the stoke that people have here. Yeah. So. Well, and what, what is it about, you know, what was it about working at Moots that was particularly special for you? And like, who were some of your mentors? You know, what, what'd you learn there? Well, it, it was a opportunity to work from the, the very bottom, you know, the very bottom to the very top kind of. Okay. And so I was able to experience, you know, every, every part of manufacturing while I was there, every, every part of manufacturing a bicycle frame from titanium. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started out welding, but pretty, I did that pretty solid for, Oh, five years, five, six years, you know, tons and tons of welding. But while at that time, Kent Erickson was still um, employed by Moots. And so even in those first few years, I was helping, you know, Kent never used a computer and I brought some CAD skills with me. And so pretty quickly I was involved in design work and any little part he wanted to get machined, you know, we needed to do a drawing and I was a drafts person, so I could create an engineering, you know, a, a print uh, that yeah. somebody could read and manufacture it really easily. So um, with, the, with a lot of those skills that I brought, I was able to evolve at Moots. You know, I, I look back on it and I think, oh, it you know, happened pretty quick. But, but really, it took a, took a number of years. And by 2004... Um, I was the production manager at Moots and managing, you know, the flow of the flow of products through the, through the factory. And, um, at the time it was about, I think it was about 14 or 16 guys and gals Mm -hmm. that were making the bikes. So, um, you know, and then designing all the bikes after Kent left. Um, and I was, uh, designing tooling and, you know, as, new specifications came out we would incorporate those into the bikes and yeah just making it all happen and then uh yeah i finally finally got tired of the the high volume you know it just got it got really really big and i was no i was then just like i said kind of a cog in the machine Mm -hmm. and um and then it not long after my dad passed away, I kind of felt like it was time to make a change. 
yeah, that'll that'll definitely catalyze some yeah. some serious self reflection for sure. Yeah, um, I think in my case as well, when my when my dad got sick, um, you know, he, he had a in my dad's case it was a, a brain tumor, so mm-hmm. as a type that you usually don't uh, get more than like six, eight, ten months from. Yeah, um, and from then I was like, okay, I moved back moved back home. Um, and resolve like, okay, what are the things that I would like to have done if I were on my deathbed and that I would like to do and share with my father while he's still around Mm -hmm. and like, you know, shifted my whole life trajectory. Sure. Yeah. 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 So I, yeah, I hope, did you get the, did you get the six or eight, 10 months with him? Uh, yeah, he, he lasted about eight months or so. He passed, uh, about 10, 10 days before his 50th and my 25th birthdays. We shared oh, wow. the same birthday. Wow. And, yeah. um, it was, I wanted to, I wanted to land a big account in the company I was working with. I wanted to, um, get into a good grad school and I wanted to get my pro upgrade as a racer and I got, Two, two of the three before he passed. And then uh, I had a, a good season uh, later on uh, the, the following year and uh, was a, a pack fodder pro for a hot minute. Gotcha. But again, like that, that reckoning of seeing, seeing a, you know, a parental figure and someone that I admired and learned a lot from, you know, towards the end of life and maybe reflect a lot on, on what I want to do with my own. Yeah. 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 yeah 50 is, 50 is way too young. Way too young. I, my dad was 63 when he passed away, and that mm-hmm. felt way too young. I think it is never a good age to lose a parent. Like it, it just brings sure. with it different challenges. Like when when you're a child, it it's like you you need that parental figure to help guide you through life. When you're going through your your 20s or so, you're trying to discover yourself, and that guidance can be helpful. If you're in your 40s or 50s, I haven't had that experience, though I will. Uh, my mother's still around and still yeah. healthy, but you know, then it's like you're confronting your own mortality. Uh, <laughs> so part part of the cycle of life. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So so your dad your dad passes. You decide it's time. So what did that process look like? Yeah. So um, I chose to yeah I chose to leave the job I'd been in for 15 years. And, um, you know, they were, Moots was, they were a little surprised by it because I had been there for so long. And, um, you know, at the time I was, I was playing a pretty integral part. Um, so I I went to part-time for, you know, I gave them a healthy notice and went to part-time and then, you know, finally trailed off, um, and that was springish of 2012, and I had no, I had no plans. I had bought a airstream uh, to renovate, so I did a like a shell off restoration on a 1973 airstream, and shell off renovation. Yeah. So, like, you pulled the shell off the chassis, sandblasted yep. the chassis. Exactly. All right, this this we need we need to do a tangent on this because I, I also did a um uh, a camper build at one point. So tell me about yeah. this airstream. I'm super so curious. What, what was the camper you did? Um, mine mine I built out of a 15 foot V nose motorcycle trailer. 
because oh, yeah. I had a I had a Honda Element, which is a four cylinder, yeah. um, boxy little little adventure mobile that I wanted to you know use as a you know I wanted to be able to tow around the country. So I built this ultra light, um, largely self sustaining kind of off grid yeah. trailer. You know, solar thin film solar on the roof and water recycling for the toilet and all the other stuff. And oh, cool. yeah, it was it was an experience. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, mine was. Uh... It was my brother-in-law's folks up in Montana. I was up in Montana in 2011 for uh, like a, a U.S. Cup mountain bike race um, yeah. up in up in Missoula. And uh, what what year is this? 2011. 2011. Okay, so this is towards the tail end. I, I did the the um, when it was the Kenda Cup. Yeah, I don't know if they were still sponsoring. It's like Show Air was a shipping logistics company that was sponsoring. This is like 08, 09, yeah. maybe 2010. So I think maybe the tail end. Yeah, that sounds right. I don't even know if Kenda and Showair were still involved. Like I, I raced like the, um, like 2010, I think I was doing like the, like San Dimas and Fontana. Yep. I did those races. Yep. Did you do them? In okay. 20? So, you, so, so you were a, uh, you were a privateer pro as well, or were you on a team or? Yeah, I was, you know, it was moots. I was, yeah. I was, I was riding the moots and just having, just having huh. fun with it. What, what years did you race? I wonder if we actually lined up Two, next uh, to each other at some well, point. Well, I raced, I raced pretty hard, like nine, 10. Yeah. Same. You do sea otter. Uh, oh gosh. I, I don't think I did sea otter until like 2016. Okay. Um, my, um, yeah, my like pro mountain bike racing got, got sidetracked by two hip surgeries. Oof. So okay. I'm trying to remember how hard I went in 2011. I feel like Oh yeah, yeah. I had already retired by that point. Yeah, yeah. I was like, okay, I've got way too much student loan debt. <laughs> living out of my car, you know, spending money to be a professional athlete. <laughs> yeah. So I had um, my my major injury. Um, I, I tore the labrum, tore the labrum in my hip, uh, which uh -huh. turns out was a it was a genetic issue. Um. And Interesting. It's just weak in some way, or there's some uh, the sort shape of... of shape of the femur. Okay, my yeah. sister did the same thing, and she had had to have her shaved. Did you have the the shaving yeah. surgery, or did you tear it right through? The shaving. Yep. Yeah. Same. Yep. Yeah. So, and then same thing on the other side. Correct. Both sides. Yep. Wow. Ident identical. So that ended up um, the pain was pretty bad, and kind of set me back in 2012. Um, and I prepped myself for surgery at the Stedman clinic down in Vail, um, mm -hmm. and had surgery in on the right leg or the right hip, uh, like February of 2013. And then I had my left one done July of 2013. So 2013 was kind of a throwaway year and, you know, I don't mean that entirely. Yeah. It was a it was a great year, but um, in in terms of in terms competing of, at yeah. the highest level yeah. in athletics of any sort, yeah, yeah. and then that, that makes uh, sense. But then I came back 
I came back really hard 2014 and like just once I had the go ahead and I was, I had a wonderful physical therapist and I was just getting after it hard. And so at that time also I was working for Kent Erickson and uh-huh. he was like, you know, all about it. Like, yeah, go, go do it. Go, go get it while you can kind of. And, uh, I was not something you do in your forties unless you're, uh, or fifties, unless you're what tinker or, um, yeah. uh, well, Ned. So Ned I went like, so 2014, I kind of got myself back in, back in race shape and did things like Breck Epic. Um, if you're familiar with that. I am. And, I got some uh, friends who are doing it this year. I hear yeah. it's phenomenal. And uh, yeah, did a b- bunch of mountain biking. And then I kept ramping it up until about uh, 2017. So mm-hmm. yeah, it went pretty hard because my wife was was racing cross country as well. And so it was something we did together, you know, and I would throw in road races and then and, and whatever. <laughs> I was going to say that that makes a lot of sense that uh, it was something you shared because otherwise, I mean, you're, you're on the road all the time and yeah. it's really hard to be on the road with like, as a, as a partner, be on the road with your partner who's out racing all the time and, you know, yeah, camping at different places or, you know, subletting yeah. or, or doing whatever it takes, oh. you know, sleeping on sofas, wherever. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like, so 2016, I turned 40 in the fall. Mm-hmm. So my goal was to do 40 races before I turned 40 that year. Jeez. So that's, I, uh, that's impressive. <laughs> I just turned 40 and I, I don't have, a, I don't think I have a single race in me right now. Yeah. <laughs> that's, all right. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. So yeah. Anyways. Um, but all the way back to the Airstream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, fun project, you know, kind of kept me occupied, um, as I let, after I had left Moots, it, uh, definitely kept me occupied for a good few months. And, and did you tow that around, um, with your wife, you, tra- know, you know, training and racing everywhere or no, were we just no, living it was, in it? It was a project. Like it okay. took, a, took a long time to get it even to where it is today, which is, I'd call it, I'd call it 90% done. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. Okay. Good, good enough where your motivation is, uh, is less less than, yes, it's waning. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, but I, but I think, I think that's part of the danger, the dangerous spot that I'm in. Cause I, I also am like comfortable enough and I got other priorities, but got to keep things moving along. Yeah. 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 So yeah. But, uh, anyway, I didn't have any, I didn't have any plans to start, you know, to, I had no plans to be building bikes after I left Moots. I just wasn't, I just was like, I'm okay with taking some time and figuring out whatever the heck happens. And, uh, and then Ken Erickson who had left Moots, uh, in 2005, he, he had been doing his thing for a while and he reached out and said, Hey, how about, how about you come back to me? And, uh, with the intention that you t- take over the business. So, all right. So that's wait. How. So this is, this is his independent business. Yeah, correct. Yeah. He started Kent Erickson cycles about a year at about a year, year and a half after he left moots. 
Mm -hmm. So 2006. So um, it'd been going for about, yeah, six, seven years. And is he a few years your senior? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so he's, he's been at it. He's been at a long time. Oh yeah. And when did the, how long did you work together before he started to kind of transition out of the business? Uh, so from, it would have been late, late 2012, um, until the late 2016. So four years that, uh, Mm -hmm. till we bought the business and then, and then he was on board working for about 18 months afterwards. So five and a half years. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. That's like quite, quite an arc to have worked together in a different business, have him leave and then have yeah. you kind of take on his thing and have him supporting you in that role. Totally. Uh, yeah. That sounds really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. He and I, we have a, like, we have a good relationship. I don't spend very much time with him because he does tend to kind of hermit himself up on his property. And he just, you know, he's, he has a beautiful piece of property up in the mountains and it's like, you know, his slice of heaven, like he doesn't need to go anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. but to see him, some you pretty much got to go up there and yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, but our working relationship is super good. Like really loved the time we worked together is very much a lot of back and forth and a lot of mutual respect. And, um, neither of us really got upset with like, criticisms, you know, I mean, we were just really open with each other. So it was nice. And you, you said, um, we bought the business and I, I know that I, I spoke together with my colleague, Sam, with your wife, um, initially before chatting with you. So, uh, you know, share a bit about, about her and and how the two of you work together and so on. Sure. And actually, I mean, I, I, I kind of misspoke because Technically, it's only myself that owns the business, but mm-hmm. but we were together, are together um, in everything that we do there. So um, yeah. it feels like you know it feels like we bought it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so um, so yeah, Hannah and I have been uh, been together since 2010, like late 2010, and um, you know just a just a fun like athletic, you know, athletic based relationship because <laughs> mm-hmm. we, you know, she was a runner at the time we met and I was kind of, I was kind of like still enjoying some running. Like I did my first mar- marathon with her and um, my first and only, wait, I should, <laughs> I should have had that. Um, I mean, that's more, that's more than many cyclists, many cyclists will do. Most cyclists, I don't even know. Uh, sure. A lot of cyclists I know will joke that they don't know how to run. Right. So right. <laughs> doing a single marathon is, is not bad. Yeah. So, so yeah, we had never, we had actually, you know, we'd never worked together, but with this idea of me taking over the business, um, I really wanted somebody there that I, that I could trust to run the books. I knew that that would take such a burden off of me. And, mm-hmm. um, so we, we agreed that, um, that that's how we would do it. And it's worked out really well. Um, and yeah, yeah, she, she has a, she had been working in some other outdoor, 
um, some other outdoor companies that are located in Steamboat Springs. Um, she'd been doing bookkeeping and accounting for those companies. So she was mm-hmm. well, well versed and ready to take it on. Um, and then, and, she, uh, mm-hmm. oh, go ahead. Oh, and she also like, she, you know, makes the website happen, makes the web store happen, keeps all the back end stuff going. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a huge component to the business. I'm sure as, oh, yeah. as you know, um, it really allows me to draw some, to draw some lines of things that I work on and things that I don't work on. I mean, it's, it's exhausting otherwise, uh, you know, especially like early days when, when, if it's, if it's just one person or just two people and mm-hmm. everyone's doing everything, uh, I mean, it works for some people, but it definitely constrains scale. And it also means that there's a lot of context switching from, you know, now I want to focus on products, but, you know, now I have to do a whole bunch of customer service emails and then, you know, I need to do some, some marketing outreach and, oh, you know, uh, have we paid that bill yet? Yep. Yep. Uh, But, but, but we're tiny, you know, we're a tiny little operation. So is it, it's the two of you? It's the two of us and one employee. Okay. Yeah. And, and what is your, uh, what's your other team member doing? So Ed, Ed is our, our third man. And, uh, mm-hmm. he's like, does all of the final, final assemblies. So, okay. uh, you know, complete, complete build outs. Um, <clears throat> he is, uh, he's a veteran of the bike world. Uh, I mean, he used to own one of the bike shops here in downtown Steamboat. Uh, he's a certified motorcycle mechanic. Um, mm-hmm. So he's just, he's just awesome. Super, super diverse. So he builds, he builds all of my wheels. Like I said, does the final assemblies. He kind of manages the, the web orders and ships product based on those incoming web orders. Um, and then, mm-hmm. And then he's also in production. So he's, uh, does all the finish work on the frames. Uh, that's mm-hmm. like bead blasting and polishing, you know, brushing, what, everything that kind of takes place after I weld it, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, and then help. So you're doing the tube selection, mitering. Yeah. And all the upstream up there. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then he has, and, and like oh Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he has some, uh, you know, some machining, some other machining roles as well. But those are like, it's it's really funny just how they fall into the production process because like, you like, yeah, I, it's like we always need something. <laughs> There's always something to be done. <clears throat> so. so what's the what's the process like? Like, say you know, one of our listeners. Um, was looking to get a custom bike uh, built with you. Yeah. How does that? How does the communication work? How's what's the, the process you take them through? Yeah. So typically they reach out. <clears throat> excuse me. Typically they reach out through the the website, and yeah. then the conversation starts. Um, we have a pretty basic kind of intake form, if you will, a fit form, and we start with that. Uh, that does have. A lot of uh, a lot of measurements that they can provide. Uh, if I were to be creating the fit based on those measurements, but what I am seeing more and more 
is that clients are coming with a fit, you know, most often a retool fit. Yep. Same. Totally dialed. Same. Yep. And so then the, depending on our workload, uh, you know, sometimes we have to delay um, the conversation because I've just got too many clients currently that I'm working with. So it's a good, good problem to have. Yeah. Yeah. Generally it's a good problem. Yeah. So, um, but we start the conversation, you know, again, every, every client is a little bit different. No, no scenario is exactly the same, but, um, most often we create a, create an estimate for the build out that they're looking for. Um, you know, if, if it's a complete build, of course, they want to see what that's going to look like. Um, so we provide, we provide estimates, uh, with no, um, you know, with no deposit, no, no obligation to purchase. Um, we want them to see where, how they're spending their money. Um, Mm -hmm. once they're satisfied that like the pro that things look good, um, then we take a deposit and then we really dive into the design work. Um, try to avoid putting in a lot of front end design work with no, um, you know, with no obligation. Sure. And I mean, you can get, you can go pretty far in kind of teasing out high level, a high level understanding of what the rider needs. And also mm-hmm. they can get a real sense of whether, you know, whether it's going to be the right match for them you yeah. know, with those initial conversations. So that totally makes sense. Yeah. And then when you're, when you're looking at like, okay, so what are the different, walk us through like the different parameters of frame design for a particular rider. What, what are the, the different levers that you can pull? And then what information are you teasing out from the rider? Yeah. Either through that fit info or those conversations to, to yeah. determine, you know, uh, how that bike gets created. Yeah. So, I mean, you want to, you want to get kind of deep. Oh yeah. Let's go, let's go full nerd. Uh, (laughs) So so I, I I think I shared with you previously, like I had, you know, did a two episode uh, conversation Mm -hmm. with Craig Calfee that was got into boron infused resin and like, you know, I think Josh Portner and I were talking about the creation of CAD tools for modeling a spinning wheel uh, so we, we can go as, <laughs> we can go as nerdy as we like. Yeah. So yeah, give it, give us, give us the full nerd version. Well, since we're on the gravel ride, um, yeah. you know, let's talk or let's talk a little bit around a gravel bike. Um, but when there's, you know, so for example, a lot of my clients do tend to be like, you know, they're, they're experienced riders of a certain age, let's say. So mm-hmm. a lot of those fits, you know, they, they are changing. Um, so, you know, y- you really want to look at all of the parameters and, you know, weight bias, rear wheel, front wheel is a biggie. Uh, so you mm-hmm. kind of identify that pretty, pretty quickly. You know, you can adjust that, of course, by front center and stem length um, to achieve a weight bias that you're, that you're happy with, but, you know, generally speaking, um, you want to, um, with those more upright positions, you know, you want to have increased trail. You want to have a longer front center. Um, you want, you know, if you're, cause if you're gonna, if you're gonna have a short stem, 
you want higher trail. Yeah, because you're effectively without all else equal on the trail side, you're speeding up the, the ratio of, of uh, you know, less input for the same amount of output when you go with a shorter stem. Correct. Less stability. Yeah. 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 And, and then depending on, you know, wh what you've done with the like chainstay length and the rear wheel mm -hmm. weight bias, you know, that quickly lightens the front end. Um, so you got, you need to be, yeah, you need to be careful there. Um, so yeah. And it's like every rider is different. If you're more aggressive and, you know, racy on the gravel bike, then yeah, you might be looking for a, um, you know, for a longer stem, more weight on the front contact, front contact patch. Um, Potentially less, less frontal area mm -hmm. in a, in a more kind of, you know, locomotive type position for mm -hmm. long flats and things like that as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, a, a lot of those things, a lot of those changes do end up being perception and not, not all that much reality. The, the frontal area. Yeah. It's huge. Right. Yeah. But wheelbase doesn't, you know, if a shorter wheelbase is going to be perceived as quick, oh, this is fast, mm -hmm. right? But no, it's not, you're not going any faster because you have Sure. To... Yeah. It's the, the sensation of speed yeah. and, and responsiveness, which, you know, another, the, the flip side of the same coin is twitchiness, right? Sure. Whether it's responsive or twitchy is depends on who you are and whether you've crossed the line from one to the other. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah. in the custom world, you know, in the custom world, it's nice because you have all of the levers to pull. You can do yeah. You can do anything with it, which is which is wonderful um, because I do see a lot of pretty odd <laughs> or out of the norm cockpits, and mm -hmm. and you really want to give them an experience you want to create a bike underneath them that just feels right. Like, wow, this, this is comfortable. I mean, it's, you know, a longer wheelbase on a gravel bike is really much more comfortable, uh, for the long haul. If you, you know, especially if you're an older rider, um, those, you know, the frequency of, of bumps, you know, washboards, you can, you can change that drastically. Uh, with a slightly longer wheelbase. Tell me more about that. How does that actually work? Well, because you have the slacker head angle, which mm -hmm. inherently allows the fork to flex a little more. Okay. Right. And then, yep. and then the, the longer wheelbase, you know, um, just geometrically it, it doesn't have to, the, the angle of change is, lessened okay as you go over a, as you go over a rise or through a pothole that that angle of change is, is lessened on a longer wheelbase it hadn't occurred to me that so you're saying like a degree of head tube angle change all else mm -hmm. equal same fork same tubes and everything else will actually you'll you'll feel that. yeah huh you'll feel that flex yeah. uh, that definitely 
Got it. Because I, I was thinking of it purely in terms of its effect on trail or like the caster effect to, to mm-hmm. simplify it for those who don't know trail and, um, uh, and, you know, potentially the introduction of tire flop, which usually isn't an issue on, you know, gravel bikes because the head tubes aren't slack enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, oh. yeah, there, there's that. There's also, you know, again, back to like slightly longer wheelbase, shorter stem. I think there is some, some also, um, comfort gained by, uh, how much weight is on the hands, what you feel through the, what you feel through the front, but that's really driven by the overall cockpit and the, the fit parameters, you know? Yeah. So, but yeah, basically where that, those three points in space where the, uh, the angle of the hypotenuse mm-hmm. between them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so yeah, you know, they, it's pretty quick, uh, pretty quick to tell the difference and how, how smooth bikes are, um, with those pretty, pretty small dimensional changes. Um, but it's even, it's been difficult for me even in design where I go, Oh, wow. I don't, wow. I don't want to change the front center by, by that much. Like, Oh, that's, that's 20 millimeters. And then you have to remember, wait, it's 20 millimeters. It's nothing. Like, <laughs> well, as a, as a percentage, if you're dealing with a bike that has a wheelbase, you use a round number of like a thousand, usually a, a large yeah. gravel bike could be a bit sure. longer than that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 20 millimeters. So 2%. Right. Nothing. Yeah. But it's so probably- in terms of in terms of mass distribution over the two axles, it's going to be bigger than that because it's relative to its distance to the the bottom bracket. So the rear end is staying unless you change the rear end with it as well. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I, I think I think oftentimes it is smart to adjust that rear center in, a, in accordingly um, because otherwise you will end up with um, too much rear weight bias. You know. Yeah. So. Which, which can be which can be fun if you like wheelies and for a certain type of riding. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, you, you know, the bike I'm like the bike I'm riding right now is uh, I think it's about a four. I think it's like a four twenty seven uh, chainstay mm-hmm. center to center, not effect, not uh, horizontal, but yep, center to center. It's like a like a four twenty seven. So horizontal, it's going to be you know, four twenty three. It's a pretty tight. Yeah, it's pretty short. No, actually, no, not that much, but yeah, four twenty four or something like that. Yeah, actually I think it is less. Um because the drop is probably I think the drop on my rig is like at least seventy three, seventy five maybe. I forget now. Mm-hmm. But, um but that's a pretty tight tight rear and then the front is like a I think the my current ride is like a seventy one point seven head angle mm-hmm. with a forty seven fork. No, How tall are you? Uh, probably five ten, maybe a sh- maybe five ten. Yeah. Okay. So on a larger, medium, smaller, large sort of. Yeah. If you were to fall onto a, a conventional bike. Yeah. 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 And uh, just just for context, because then because then you know understanding like a, you know an extra large rider is going to be riding. Uh, even if you scaled that bike up, well, you you can't really because the wheels don't scale. Right. And so you have to adjust those, those angles and those lengths and stuff like that, not just proportional, but also to account for the fact that the wheels are staying, uh, which, which I always thought was an interesting opportunity 
uh, you do see some brands that um, uh, will, you know, restrict to like a 650B on their smallest sizes, for example. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you do see yeah. that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think we should bring back 26 for those really small riders <laughs> who want to run 2.4s, but I guess it's not enough of a market or a yeah. marketing, uh, uh, you know, edge to be gained from it. So, yeah, I, I, I find that, uh, my more, like my more experienced clients that are, that are very small, they're, they're really looking for 700. So yeah. They're, they, they don't. Yeah, it's interesting. Same thing. And how much of that is, what do you think are the drivers of that? Is that, do you think it's actually better for the vast majority of those riders or? I think that the, the, again, kind of back to that going, you know, actually going fast, comfortably, like comfortably going fast, you're going to do that better on a 700 than on a 650. Yeah. Rolling resistance, attack angle, things like this. Yes. Yes, exactly. And yeah. so, and, and so we, worth, the, we, worth the compromises on maybe responsiveness or, or what have you, because you're definitely giving up something there, oh, even if you do proportional cranks. For sure. Yeah. But I, I think like there's, you know, you know how it is. There's a, the, the sharp end of a Peloton they want, or, or the entire Peloton, they want responsiveness. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but you know, for so like, how do you do it on those really small frames? Like, you know, you have a, a five foot, five foot tall rider come in four foot, and they want to do gravel ten. racing four foot 10. Yeah. <laughs> four foot 10. I mean, there's, yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, there's almost nothing out there off the shelf for a, a rider who's four foot 10 and they yeah. end up on these bikes with no standover and a 40 mil stem and they're still not fit properly. Yeah. So I, I take advantage of, so seven cycles, uh, yep. they've been producing, Out. producing a fork called the, the matador for, yeah. for quite a while. It has a 55 millimeter offset. Mm-hmm. So you can get, you can get pretty slack with the front end and still keep it, uh, you know, on the low, low, lowish side of trail. Um, yeah. And for, for those who don't know, um, when you increase the offset, you decrease the trail all else equal. Correct. And when you de- when you increase the head angle, you um, decrease the trail as well. You essentially less trail, less caster effect, yeah. all else equal, more, more responsive or more twitchy, depending on whether you've crossed over into, you yeah. know, if you went too far, it wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to handle the bike over much. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So those, you know, and, toe overlap is a real, is a real thing. And when you start talking about a bike, that's going to clear a 45 millimeter tire. Um, so for a 410 rider. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's hard to pull off. Are you doing really, are you finding proportional cranks too? Are you running one fifties or one forty fives or this sort of thing? Yeah. I think to date one fifty is the smallest I've gone. Um, yeah. So, um, but those bikes, you know, they're, yeah, they're not, they're not racing at a high level. You know, they're, they're out enjoying gravel rides. Yeah. 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 Those I'll just comment just, uh, anecdotally the conversations I've had, particularly with some of our smallest riders 
is proportional crank lengths make such a big difference. And like mm-hmm. people are, people are just used to riding the same cranks that you and I, you know, ride their whole lives and they never knew anything different or like their bike, you know, I've, I've had riders that are five foot tall and their bikes came with 175s. you know, they had a, they had a hybrid or mm-hmm. something like that, or, sure. or they're coming off of something or like an older road bike. And I put them on 155s and it's just like, I can spin. <laughs> Yeah. I can spin at high cadences. My my pedal stroke doesn't fall apart yeah. when I'm tired. Well, also, you know, you look at bike bike frame design, and bike frame design has been dictated by what is a common crank arm length, you know, 170 to 175. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Together together with, uh, uh, you know, the outer tire radius, which is in turn driven by the, the rim dimensions. So like 650B or, or 26 versus 700 and so on. Uh, it p- puts different constraints and then you have BB drop. If you have smaller wheels, you can't have as much BB drop, which means you're yeah. kind of more on top of the bike. And so you have yeah. all these different factors that impact each other yeah. that you're balancing. Yeah. And I'm, I'd say overall, my, my design philosophy is you have, uh, the kind of the lowest possible center of gravity. Um, so maintaining, uh, you know, a low, low bottom bracket, um, whatever is acceptable for like, you know, wheelbase, crank arm length, intended pedal, all those things. Yeah. Essentially is, is, I mean, there's really not much reason not to go as low as you can go without risking pedal strikes mm-hmm. Yeah, for more or less any application. Yep. And it's just a matter of what the application demands, like a road bike that's doing crit racing is going to need a higher BB because you want to be able to pedal out of the corner as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, dual suspension mountain bike, you know, same deal, but it's, it's, uh, you need a higher BB because you have yeah. all that squish. Yeah. Yeah. Cyclocross bikes, you know, side, yeah. side hilling. And yeah. So it's interesting, you know, as gravel has, has taken over, um, cross and road, arguably, you have like a lot of people who previously might've had a road bike now might only have a gravel bike that they use for road too. Sure. Uh, but like cross, cross bikes have seemed to kind of converge with gravel bikes. You don't see a lot of high BB cross bikes, at least to my knowledge on the production side anymore. Correct. I think that's been a, I think that's been driven by how people are actually using the bikes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've, we've, we've gone pretty deep on geometry. How about, uh, tubes? Mm-hmm. So, so in, in my world, in my world, you know, I work with titanium exclusively and mm-hmm. everything that I have in house is straight gauge tubing. Um, okay. The majority. And is this all pre preformed as tubes or are you buying any flat sheets and rolling and, and welding them? No, no, the, uh, no, nothing like, like the four stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I have visited some of those factories that, that perform that function. Um, but it's just not, yeah. In my opinion, it's, it's barking up the wrong tree. Um, the tubing that I get, the vast majority of it is from Washington state from Sandvik, which is actually, they just recently were kind of rebranded to their Swedish parent company name, which is Alima. So it's interesting. Sandvik makes uh, the wire that's used in spokes as well. Uh, I believe it. <laughs> yeah. 
so like we we use pillar spokes and they use sandvik i think sapim does as well sure and it makes sense right these are high grade yeah. um high performance uh alloys yeah, yeah. Um, so there's, that. there's there's only two two places in the united states that produces titanium tubing and that's uh alima in washington state and haynes in louisiana so and that's actually produced so they're they're getting the raw material from somewhere and they're forming it into tubes here, forming it into alloys here. Exactly. Or alloying it and then forming it here. Yeah, the the what they refer to as tube hollow, that is kind of the last step of the process before it actually becomes a tube. That that tube mm-hmm. hollow is all sorted out. Like the alloy is correct, the condition is correct, and then they manufacture the tube from that. Um, and then at that, from that point forward, you know, all they can, all they can do to it is, uh, alter the condition through annealing and, and working. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So I get most, the vast majority of my tubes come from Washington state and those come in, uh, typically in like 17 foot lengths. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you have a dedicated truck coming to you. You're buying oh, enough, yeah. To, yeah, to move that sort of thing. You're not, you're not doing less than less than container load. You're doing like a, well, a box truck or something. Yeah, I mean, it usually comes by freight. It's uh, and then you have you know minimum footage requirements, um, yeah, per purchase. So, and and that's minimum footage requirement per diameter, per wall thickness. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you have to buy you know, um, it ends up being thousands of feet of material to have enough material selection on hand that you feel good about the, the tubing you can offer. So you're buying, and this is just, you're sourcing just for yourself. You're not consolidating with other builders. Correct. Yeah. Nobody else. Wow. That's a, yeah, that's a big commitment of, uh, of capital. It is. It's very, very large. Um, so I would imagine like you basically spend a whole bunch of money early in the season and well, I, no, I guess you're, you're probably able to kind of keep your demand consistent over the years. So you probably do a couple buys a year or something like that. Yeah. You end up buying enough material that you're going to be, you, you'll have that material for literally years, you know? Mm. So I think especially some of the more esoteric skews with high, high uh, minimum order quantities. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's okay. Like yeah, that's, that's the, that is the titanium world because if, if you want the highest quality American made tubing, then that's, that's what it takes period. Yeah. No, other that makes sense. <laughs> and then what, is, what are other people doing? Are they working through distributors and just hot paying? I'm, I'm curious about the, the business side of it as well. Yeah. Like are there, so, so here in the Hudson Valley where I am, we have uh vicious cycles and, yeah. uh, Carl. Um, Carl. Yeah. So Kyle's, I was out on a ride with him the other day. He'll, he'll be at Maid as well. I know yeah, he'll yeah. be at Maid too. Yeah. Um, but he's, he, his other, the other side of his business, I forget the name of it is the, I think the biggest dis- distributor of steel tubes or one of the biggest distributors of steel tubes. Yeah. And so you can do small batch. You can order as you go, yep. but presumably pay, pay a premium, but does that sort of thing exist in tight must exist in titanium as well. It doesn't. Not as much. Not not in the huh. not in the same way. Um, you can certainly purchase uh, tube sets like from uh, Datachai 
uh, yeah. Columbus. Uh, but those are all, you know, Reynolds, um, Aura, Titanium. But those are all overseas, third party. Aura's Taiwan, right? Yeah, Aura's Taiwan. I've been to their, yeah, I've been to their factory. Yeah, yeah, I've got some. I have some yeah. dropouts coming from them to, to check out. Um, hopefully, they're here like today or tomorrow. Um, Very cool. But uh, but titanium is uh, titanium is just such a difficult material to create. There's there's you know not a lot of players um, in that world, and it's expensive. You know. Yeah. So that uh, to put that outlay of capital to create tube sets for distribution, like that's being taken on by those larger companies like Columbus, Data Chai and such. It reminds me, uh, I'm going to go off on a, a tangent here. Um, you ever hear about the, the Black Hawk um, uh, spy plane? I think uh, you do like Mach 3.4. Yeah, they called it, it was, kerosene it was, coffin. Yeah, it used to leak. Yeah, the the temperatures when you're going Mach three plus are yep. so high because you're essentially compressing the yep. air ahead of you and creating that massive shock wave. But also you just you know compressing all that heat energy, and then there's it's impossible to dissipate it faster. That they and the expansion in the titanium would be such that they built it so that it was leaking when it took off, and then all the gaps would seal up when yep. you're actually up in the air, and then they'd have to do air to air refueling. Yep. I'm kind uh, of a, that thing. I'm kind of an SR seventy one Blackbird um, nerd, yeah. Nerd. All yeah. right. So then, so cool. then you know about how um, uh, the the titanium was sourced. Oh well, no. I might, maybe I from from the USSR uh -huh. through through like intermediaries. Interesting. So yeah. a US uh, US you know Soviet Union. So a US spy plane built to spy on the Soviet Union. And I think, you know, that plane was uh, launched, what, in the, in the 70s? The, the Blackbird? Um, was it, yeah, was it even earlier? Well, it was earlier. It was developed in the 50s and into the, and into the and 60s. Maybe, then maybe decommissioned in the 70s? Or? Well, it was top secret until I forget. I don't know. I forget the date. But yeah. Until, uh, yeah, that, I, I always found that interesting that uh, it's like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Buy, buying this material that, it, but it, it does speak to the fact, not just of Cold War tensions, but also of, you know, even a, a power as seemingly mighty as the U.S. had right. to source this particular material mm -hmm. from an adversary um, because of what you're speaking to, the difficulty of producing it. Yeah. Um, and then you get into like the the properties of this material, which you know were essential to being able to create that craft at the time in the first place. But you know that craft required major compromises in usability that made it you know dangerous and expensive to to build yeah. and operate. Yeah. Uh, you know, sitting in a pool of kerosene on a runway is, uh, I guess, d does it light easily? I don't think it lights all that easily. But um, no, no, they just still they not just, a good thing. They just said that it. That's what they called it, um, just because you could smell the, the fuel, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but the the SR seventy one is a, a was a development project, you know, uh, that we can thank for so much of the the titanium that we use today, and and a lot of the 
manufacturing, you know, the manufacturing processes that were used in the nineties, you know, to make, um, you know, Merlin, <laughs> lights, yeah. lights yeah. all those brands. Um, yeah. Have you ever been up close to an SR? No. So, where can you, where can you do it? Um, I think, well, they, they tend to travel around to the different air, you know, aerospace, air and space museums. Um, uh-huh. I was up close with one in, uh, McMinnville, Oregon at the Evergreen Aviation Museum. And uh-huh. that was super cool. They, um, they were allowing you to sit in it as well. No kidding. And, but then I believe there was one at the, the Pima Air and Space Museum in, uh, uh, Tucson. Yep. So, um, yeah. Up right by the boneyard. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Which is uh, the decommissioning location. You just have, if you've ever, those listening, if you've ever seen pictures of thousands of yeah. aircraft sitting in a desert, that's the boneyard and outside of Tucson. It's an insane place. Yeah. Um, but, but at yeah. that, the one I was looking at there, when you went up to the, like the jet engine cowling, you, mm-hmm. and you look closely, I, you, you're looking at these massive pieces of titanium. And if you look closely, you can see the end mill machining marks and <laughs> you can see how that was machined and it was probably done manually. Oh yeah. And especially at that age, hour, at that, uh, that vintage, the hours and hours that probably went into that. So pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Cool stuff. There's, um, You've probably come across the, this videos on YouTube with uh, interviewing the engineers who worked on that project in no. particular. Some of the, oh, no. um, okay. Welcome to your I next rarely, rabbit hole. I rarely go down the YouTube rabbit this, hole. This is a worthy one, I would say. There was yeah. there was one, uh, there was a couple interviews I, I watched with uh, someone who worked on the engines uh, for that craft. So yeah. an engine that's pushing, you know, 3.2, 3.4 Mach at, you know, again, fifties, sixties technology. Yeah. Um, and one, it's cool stuff, but two, um, just the delight that, that you see in, in, you know, he's, he's still, you know, in 2023 giving tours and talking about that experience of working on these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Um, cool. All right. So we've, we've, Thank you for indulging <laughs> my rabbit hole. Seems like we have another thing in common. Uh, uh, so, so okay. So you have your tubes. Um, oh and- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And then I do, I do supplement. Uh, there are limitations for sure to the manufacturing capability of, of U.S. titanium tube makers. So, what are those uh, limitations? That, uh, diameter. So, okay. They only, they only go so large and so that's, so, that's mostly, that, that's not a technology thing. That's more of a, a marketability thing, presumably. Yeah. Like not, not enough scale. Um, or is it, or is it hard to create certain diameters at certain wall thicknesses? It is hard because it is, uh, it is the diameter to wall ratio that does get very, very okay. difficult in titanium. Um, but yeah, I think that how's it, how's it formed? So is it formed out of sheets that are auto welded or no, no, it's a seamless, seamless drawn tube 
from, yeah. from what's referred to as a tube hollow. And is this like Plato Fun Factory sort of forming process? It's like uh, like drawn over a mandrel. Okay. Yeah, and and basically beaten beaten into submission. Um, <laughs> so uh, so yeah, so they can only produce up to a certain size, you know, a certain wall thickness. Um, there, so there's a lot of large diameter down tubes that are being used mm -hmm. these days, and I'm definitely I'm definitely on board with that. So I will pick those up from Titanium Joe out of the Northeast there. Um, okay. Uh, New York and Ontario. Uh, he's got a, you know, warehousing. Um, so I'll go there for like a one and three quarter diameter down tube. Um, I do some two inch diameter down tubes for tandems. I'll even do like a two and a quarter outside diameter, uh, like boom, mm -hmm. boom tube and down tube. So, yeah. so yeah. And those are, those are typically a Chinese sourced tube. Um, mm -hmm. and, but they're, they're pretty damn good. They've, they've proven themselves to be pretty good over time. And this is, uh, you know, torsional stiffness, bottom bracket stiffness, things like this. Yeah. Heavier riders, riders who want more, you know, um, responsiveness on acceleration things like that. Yeah. Also, you know, stiffness is what's going to eliminate any kind of like harmonic balance where mm -hmm. you get any kind of like speed speed wobble if you will yeah you know there's two two major fact well there's more than there's like three major factors uh <laughs> frame stiffness just straight up yeah frame stiffness mm -hmm. period and you know titanium 25 years ago had a pretty bad rap of being noodly right so yeah yeah you can you can certainly eliminate that by going to a, a large larger diameter down to, um, kind of, you know, beefing everything up a bit, but, you know, luckily we've seen all these advances in frame design, larger head tubes, you know, stiffer steerer tubes that all adds, you know, the fork is a important component when it comes to stiffness yeah. of the entire assembly. So um, monocoque, monocoque carbon fork yeah. construction. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And also the stiffer suspension forks as well. Um, mm, mm. that made things much better. Um, but then, you know, and then secondly, uh, alignment, alignment of the bicycle is huge. Uh, cause that, that's what can, uh. you know, set off the, you know, people, you rarely hit, hear builders talk about alignment and it's like, yeah, I mean, alignment is at the top of the list. That's number one. I think want, it's taken for granted too on the other, on the other side. Yeah. It's like, oh, these, these, this is, this is my geometry. But right. then again, when we talk about geometry, we're not talking about tolerances and none of those numbers, um, if we're not talking about tolerances, we're certainly not talking about tolerances of like the center of the BB relative to the center of the, the rear axle and the alignment right. of those two axes and things like this. Exactly. And, and, and that's right uh, at the top of the list. Like, oh, again, like I've had a long time, you know, 27 years of building bikes <laughs> try to figure it out. And, uh, and yeah, uh, I think honestly, like alignment is at the top of the list. It's like, that's what makes a bike feel good. You, you know? Well, let's talk about all the ways that can go wrong too. Cause it's not, it's not just the design in the, in the jigging. It's also the heat treatment, right? Well, there's no post, there's no post welding. Uh, no post with titanium. Mm -hmm. 
Correct. So then how, how do you end up with poor alignment? What are the things that, uh, that could, that could drive that? Yeah, yeah. For poor alignment, uh, gaps like in, in your fit ups. Okay. You know, you're fitting okay. a, a tube to dropouts, bottom bracket shell, you know, chainstay to bottom bracket shell. You know, you're every piece of the bike, every single piece that goes together can give you a place for poor alignment. Mm -hmm. So how the down tube fits up to the head tube. Oh, that's, that's crummy. That's not going to be good. So it's, this is how precise you, you set up all of your, your machining tools when you're doing your mitering. Yes, um, yes. How precisely everything is fitted <laughs> up in the jig when you're going yep. to actually do the TIG work. Yep. Or is it TIG or MIG for titanium? TIG. TIG, yeah. TIG. Tungsten. Yeah. Tungsten inert gas. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And so, so yeah, I would say the, the biggest issue with metal bikes and alignment is simply, you know, poor fit-ups, gaps, um, maybe too much, you know, maybe too much heat through the welding mm-hmm. process in one specific area. Um, you know, you do get a lot of change of shape, um, especially in mm-hmm. titanium. That's why people, people don't love building titanium bikes sometimes because it really moves around a lot. Yeah. And you can't, you don't just throw the whole thing in an oven and bake it. Correct. Yeah. 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 So, so that that's two things. And the third one, what the, just the, the geometry of the bike and particularly, you know, trail as a primary driver. Um, I was going to say weight, weight bias as far as. Oh, okay. Like, yep. yeah. If you're making Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So like imagine, a you know, somebody who's already in a really, really upright position and then puts a rack on the bike and puts 50, mm-hmm. 50 pounds on the rear rack. Like, oh yeah. Well, and that weight distribution too, um, <laughs> It's funny. I was just in a forum um, telling somebody uh, on, who got the same cargo bike that I did that their their stacked up stem assembly is going to end up with them dead because they added like a riser stem on top of a riser stem on a folding stem assembly, and they have their the 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 top one is adjust the top stem's adjustable and it and it yeah. and you just get it pointed straight upright, and then the bars are slightly swept back, so like the grips are like right. You know, if you draw a line between the grips, yeah. it would probably intersect right at the center of the steering axis. There's like nothing resisting this bike just flopping over. Um, you know, we might be getting a bit esoteric here, but uh, yeah, don't, if you're listening, don't do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> especially on a, especially on a, a bike that's, you know, in that case, you mentioned racks and things like that. Like when you have, in addition to the rider, these other masses now you have a dynamic system where you're getting like an additional oscillation loop because the bike is doing its little wiggle thing. And then the rider is trying to compensate and depending on, you know, the response rate of that rider's brain and their ability to move their muscles in response, it could actually create a resonance that amplifies rather than dampens that, that speed wobble or whatever it is. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So (laughs) yeah. Okay. Cool. So, cool. Yeah. So it all, it all comes back to, to, yeah, building, building stiff, you know, stiff bikes. Um, titanium is wonderful in that regard because you can build a stiff titanium bike that still maintains that nice resilience, that, that feel of tie. You know? And tell, tell me more about that. 
So um, how how do the properties of it compare to like, you know, obviously you can make a, a, a tube heavier, thicker or whatever and and get certain properties. But in a high performance bike that's light enough that people actually want to ride it, how does it compare to steel? And then on the other end, you know, carbon is is a non, um, you know, uh, non-homogenous um, material. Like you can you can lay it up however you want it. It's a composite. So what you know what are the the differences in terms of ride characteristics and why? Sure. Uh, between the different materials. Sure. So so I'm not a materials scientist, not a materials yeah. engineer. So um, I won't I won't be able to get too deep on you here. But um, basically, you know, titanium has a very high modulus of elasticity, so mm-hmm. it's it's very happy to bend, you know, which that's why some of those, those old tie bikes and even underbuilt tie bikes, um, can be referred to as a noodle because, Mm -hmm. because of that high modulus, you know, that's what it likes to do. Um, but in the right, you know, in the right alloys, in the right size and the, the right wall thickness, you know, everything kind of comes together to give a really beautiful feel along with and by size you mean tube diameter tube diameter yeah, yeah yeah so you know as a as a material titanium is like compared to steel like steel is going to have a, a higher tensile mm-hmm. right um yep. it's going to have a higher tensile it's going to be uh, obviously quite a bit heavier um but with yeah. that higher tensile, you know, you don't need as much of it. And so you can pare it down, you know, wall thicknesses on steel tube sets are quite a bit thinner than titanium tube sets, generally speaking. Yeah, though also you have to kind of keep tube diameters smaller in order for weight not to get out of control, even with those thin wall thicknesses. Yeah. Um, and Absolutely. in turn... Yeah. And then in turn, you know, your, your stiffness is going up with the next, what was it, um, with the square of uh, tube diameter? If you say so. <laughs> some, some, something like that. So, so uh, but the other, so I'm sure that, I'm sure that someone, uh, a mechanical engineer in the, yeah. uh, in the audience will chime in yeah. uh, and uh, correct me on that. Yeah. But so, you know, from, as I understand it, the you know, steel, you can pare it down. You can, that's why budding, budding of steel yeah. tubes is so beneficial because that that reduction of material does equate to a very nice reduction in overall weight, but mm-hmm. it also adds to the ride quality. Um, in, it's kind of maximizing the tube diameter and minimizing the wall thickness yeah. right up to the point where you're getting a higher risk of failure due to, you know, it, it, yeah. Bending in compression or getting dented. Correct. Yeah. And, and, yeah. you know, that's why, that's why I don't, I don't really prescribe to the, um, double butted tube sets for titanium. Yeah. Because, um, you can, you can maintain a thin wall. You can, you go with a larger OD. Um, you know, when you start talking about, removing some of that material all in my opinion 
all you are doing is making a bike that is much more uh, vulnerable to denting and and failure. Yeah, it's you know. Yeah, and and I'll certainly say as 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 I my riding changes, I'd much rather have those extra grams and a bike that lasts forever and mm-hmm. won't fail catastrophically on me. Um, then, you know, something that's, uh, pushed to the very edges of what material can do under the ideal conditions, Exactly. i.e. not putting it down, not leaning it against something improperly, not having it, you know, fall on itself. Yeah. 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 I I really, you know, my, uh, like I'm at the heart, you know, the reason I, the reason I started building bikes in the first place was because I had a couple of bikes break and I was like, you know, bikes they shouldn't break like that. So, you know, I am informed by that, like that the bike should, it really should not fail. It should be, it should be, a you know, something that you put a lot of trust in, you know, you're going very fast on a bike. You're putting yourself in, in situations that if, if a failure occurs, it can be really dangerous. So, Let's just go ahead. And well, we do have like a, you know, a styrofoam cooler on our heads, yeah. with a plastic shell around it. So that'll, that'll keep us safe. And we get, you know, some, uh, some adamantium armor in the form of Lycra. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, so yeah, titanium, um, especially for gravel bikes is a wonderful material because it can take such a beating. Um, mm. yeah. You know, you hear those rocks getting thrown up by the front tire. And you just, just keep hammering. Well, and if you scratch it, you can polish it out or you can. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they're not, they're not impervious to, to, to major damage. I've seen, I've seen my fair share, but, um, overall pretty dang, pretty, pretty robust. Well, we've covered a lot here. Um, Mm -hmm. what, what other, what other things should people keep in mind when considering both a, a custom bike generally and a titanium bike specifically. Mm, gosh. What do you see as the, the advantages and the things to look out for when say choosing a builder? Hmm. Wow. Kind of put me on, put me on the spot, but, uh, you know, I think you gotta go, I, I, I would definitely say that, you know, find out who the builder is and, you know, if you really jive with them, then, then move forward and have a good experience with them. Like, don't, don't hesitate. Um, you know, I think, uh, like, yeah, finding somebody you can trust that you feel good talking to, you know, I think that, you know, somebody that doesn't put up a lot of barriers to communication, um, uh, that's, that's important. Um, and yeah, just finding somebody, like I said, you can trust. I think that's probably the most important component. Um, I think between your many years of experience and your pedigree and training and your, you just the, you know, the way in which you've communicated what you do, how you do it, why you do it, where you come from and so on here. Um, yeah, I would, I'm very excited to see some of your work at MADE. Yeah. And uh, how would anyone who's interested um, get a hold of you uh, if they want to have a bike built? Uh, the very easiest way is to just contact through our website. Uh, just to, uh, contact us right there. You know, it goes to goes directly to myself or my wife. Yeah. And what's that address? And that's binghambiltbikes.com. 
Excellent. Well, Brad, thank you so much for, uh, for your time and uh, for letting me pick your brain a little bit and uh, really looking forward to continuing the conversation in person uh, towards the end of August when I see you in Portland. Yeah, yeah, this has been really fun and been neat getting to know you and uh, wild how many similarities we've, we have in our, in our history. I'm, I'm sure there's quite a few more. So that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride podcast. I hope you learned as much as I did in that conversation between Brad and Randall. Thanks to them both for sharing so much knowledge with us on the podcast this week. If you're able to support the show, ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated. Or if you're able to support the show financially, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash the gravel ride. I hope everybody's had a great week and here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. 